Hello, true crime friends. Welcome back to True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, I really hope it gets better for you because that sucks. We're early in the week, you know? This case I have for you today, I, and not to say that it's like personal, but like the victim in this case is someone who would be my age. We were born the same year, went to college the same year. So hearing about her story and knowing where I was in my college journey at the time that she was murdered, and I think it just really kind of puts it in perspective. And I say a lot with cases like these involving the murders of young people that it's just, it's so sad that we lose these people to the world and we lose their impact on the world and because of the future they could have had and they could have done so much and I think truly that we all do leave our mark on the world whether it's big or small but I don't think that the size of the impact matters I think that the impact itself matters and the fact that like I said you know Here's another young person who was killed and, you know, robbed of their futures and all of the wonderful things they could have done. It, it, it's just really sad. So without further ado, let's get into it. On September 7th, 2012, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, police received a phone call from a distressed young woman and University of North Carolina student named Karina Rosario. She explained to the dispatcher that she had just returned home to her apartment to find her roommate unconscious and that there was blood everywhere. The bed was completely bloodied and her roommate was cold and not breathing. The dispatcher immediately told Karina to leave the room and not to touch anything else and wait for police to arrive. Her roommate was 19-year-old Faith Hedgepath. Faith Hedgepath was born on September 26, 1992 in Hollister, North Carolina, to parents Roland and Connie Hedgepath. Faith was part Halawa Saponi and was very involved in her tribe. Faith was very close to her parents and was described as a good, friendly person whose beauty came from the inside out. Faith was also very intelligent and received multiple scholarships for college. She hoped one day to become a pediatrician because she loved working with children. In 2010, she started her freshman year at the University of North Carolina. It was said there that she had a very active social life in college, was in a sorority, and overall just made friends easily. Once again, you know, as I said at the top of the episode, you know, here's this promising young woman taken from the world prematurely. And it's really, really sad that we are missing out on the good she could have put out into the world and all of that. So, yeah, it's it's just really sad. When police arrived on the scene, they described it as a scene of carnage. Faith was naked from the waist down, and her shirt had been pulled over her head. When they lifted the shirt from her head, it was apparent that Faith had experienced extreme blunt force trauma. She had two black eyes and a massive indentation in her head. 
Police questioned her friend and roommate, Karina Rosario, the one who had made the 911 call, and discovered her body. Through the interview, they were able to establish a timeline for the day of Faith's death. Karina had told police that Faith had attended a sorority event and then met her at the library around 7 p.m. The two then left and returned to their apartment at 11.30. The pair decided to go out to a nightclub called The Thrill, and they got there around 1 a.m. There, they drank, they met up with some friends, hung out, but at one point, Karina started to not really feel well and wanted to go home. So they left the club around 2 a.m. When they got back, Karina got sick but still wanted to stay up, so she spent some time texting and calling people while Faith decided to call it a night and go to bed. When Karina feels better, she hit up a male soccer friend of hers to pick her up, which most people suspected was probably a booty call, which, you know, no shame. But because of this, she decides to leave the door unlocked because they only had one key and she didn't want to wake Faith up to tell her that she was leaving. This was around 4.30 a.m. Around 10 a.m. the next day, Karina said that she called Faith but didn't get an answer. So she asked one of her other friends to drive her back to the apartment because there were some papers she needed for class that day. When they walked in, they called out for Faith, but they didn't get an answer from her. When they went in her room, sadly, that's when they found her body. Faith's parents arrived at the apartment after hearing the loss of their daughter, and of course they asked to see her, but because of the conditions of her body, the police refused the request. And and rightfully so, honestly. I mean, for one, the room where her body was found, and just the apartment in general, is a crime scene. So therefore, you know, they don't want any contamination, things like that, so that's obvious. But also, it would be extremely traumatic for them to have seen her in that state that she was found. And also at that point, they hadn't actually told them that she had been murdered. It was at that moment when they met them there that they had explained, look, Faith didn't just die. She was, she was murdered. Police searched the apartment and gathered evidence. They noticed a bloodied, emptied rum bottle, which they believed to be the murder weapon. And they also found semen next to her body. But also on the bed, there was a note written on a white paper bag, like a white paper takeout bag. And in all caps, the note read, I'm not stupid, bitch, comma, jealous. There was no blood on the bag, despite it having been on the bloodied bed, which means that the note had to have been written and placed after Faith was murdered. This note, they believed, could be evidence of motive and would prove that Faith's murder was not at all random. And it was also probably someone she knew. Sadly, one of Faith's friends, Yuna, finds out that Faith was murdered through another friend of theirs because of the immediate attention Faith's murder immediately received. Which again, I that's something I can't even imagine. I just... It's such a horrible way to have to find out. Because I can't imagine the friend that called Yuna to let her know that she was dead probably found out on the news. And that's, again, just a horrible way... To have to find out that someone you love and care about has died. That's, that's, that's pretty rough. Yuna, luckily, remembered that she had gotten a voicemail from Faith that night that she was murdered. And she described the voicemail as being staticky. She heard a lot of music in the background. And kind of just figured that Faith pocket dialed her because that was something that Faith did a lot. So she just deleted the voicemail when she got it that night. 
But after hearing that Faith was murdered, Una panicked because she was like, wait a minute, this could be evidence. So she calls her cell phone provider and they guide her through the steps to recover the voicemail. So once she recovers the voicemail, she promptly hands it over to the police that are working on Faith's case. However, the voicemail timestamp was at 1.23 a.m., which to them led them to believe that Faith and Karina were technically still at the nightclub. So because of this, the police kind of just brushed it off as a butt dial. Police then decided to pull Faith's cell phone records from the night of her murder and find out that she didn't actually immediately go to sleep just as Karina had thought or said. <laughs> Faith had been texting two different guys, which again, no shame. Come on, we've all been there. The first man police bring in for questioning who she was texting. His name was Brandon Edwards. Edwards was a close friend of both Faith's and Karina's, and he was actually having a casual sexual relationship with Karina and had spent the night on the couch the night before Faith's murder. In the texts, Faith asked Brandon to come over, saying that Karina needs him, and I'm guessing she said that just because of Karina's intoxicated state, but he texts back saying, who's this? Which meant he didn't have her number, which again, if he was a close friend, that's a little weird. But also, if you're having a sexual relationship with someone's roommate, that might be why you don't have that person's number, you know? So again, it's kind of coincidental. But Edwards admits to being at the nightclub thrill at the time that Faith and Karina were there. But he claimed he had nothing to do with Faith's murder. Police searched his car and swabbed him for DNA, but they couldn't find anything in his car, and the DNA was not a match. Police then called in the other man that Faith had texted. He was the last person that Faith had been in contact with, and that was at 3.43 a.m. It was her ex-boyfriend, Ty McNeil. Now, Ty was an older student at UNC, University of North Carolina, and he was described as being a jealous boyfriend. Like, if she fell asleep and didn't answer him back, he would just show up at her apartment or her dorm or wherever she, you know, was sleeping. When he arrives at the police station, he sees Faith's parents, who are also there, and, you know, he offers his condolences, and he discusses with them Faith's last texts to him, stating that she was still in love with him and wanted to get back together, which she thought was strange because they really hadn't talked much since they had broken up. He actually winds up showing the parents the texts, and when her father sees the text message that she had sent to Ty, he immediately said, that's not my daughter, because of one grammatical error. It was the word your, the contraction of you are. So in the text message that he saw, it read, Y-O-U-R-E, without the apostrophe. But Roland, her father, stated that she was so OCD about grammar and punctuation, she never would have missed the apostrophe. So Ty is then brought in. He's questioned by police. And, of course, he said he had nothing to do with Faith's murder and immediately offered up his DNA, which was also not a match. The police then turned to Faith's inner circle. They learned that two months before her murder, Karina had filed a restraining order against a man named Eric Tacoy Jones IV after a volatile breakup between the two. Karina actually had the locks changed immediately, but that didn't stop Jones from breaking into their apartment looking for Karina. 
He kicked open the front door and forcibly took Karina's phone and pushed her to the ground. After this incident, Faith convinced Karina that she had to file a restraining order against him. Of course, Jones was not a fan of this, and friends of both Karina and Faith said that Jones had actually threatened to kill Faith if he and Karina did not get back together. Despite this restraining order, Jones also lived in the same apartment complex, and he was also one of the first onlookers to arrive at the scene. Now, as we all know, could this be a coincidence? Sure, again, I just said he lived in the apartment, so he could have just been walking by and noticed something was going on and just so happened to be the first person. Or it could be like a killer looking at his work. But regardless, it's still pretty suspicious. And much like Stephen McDaniel, who killed his neighbor, Lauren Giddings, because of delusions he was having about them and their non-existent relationship that I just covered, he goes to the media that is in the area and speaks to them. But instead of obviously airing out his grievances, he states how sweet Faith was and that he was in total shock that this could have happened to her. And again, this is odd considering he made death threats against her and friends of theirs had said that it was very well known that Jones hated her. So why is he talking to the media <laughs> saying how nice she is and how sweet she is and oh my God, how could anyone do this to her when he's the one who literally had said in public that he would do something like this to her. So... Again, very, very odd behavior. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E made it on facebook and instagram once again go to mandy made it on facebook and instagram send her a dm and order today police decide to look into jones's social media page and they notice a really disturbing post he made on facebook the day before faith's murder it read dear lord Forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. Well, if it raised flags for you, it obviously raised flags for police. So they brought him in for an interrogation. They searched his car and obtained a DNA sample and even confiscated some clothes and other items from his apartment. But ultimately... They couldn't find anything linking him directly to Faith's murder. And that includes his DNA, because it wasn't, again, wasn't a match. Years passed, and the media attention died down, but thankfully, the police's case was still active. In July of 2014, Chapel Hill Police made a pretty bold move, so they released the documents 
from the case to the public, which included the 911 call, which a lot of people found to be very interesting because of Karina's wording. At first, she says that Faith is unconscious, despite the amount of blood around her. She also repeats the phrases, I just walk into my apartment and someone had to have been in here, which is kind of weird. It is. And in this case, it is, we will get to, but it is rightfully so. (laughs) People are suspecting her. However, there are also a lot of times where people dissect the behaviors of other people who are traumatized and grieving and in a state of shock. And there are specific behaviors and just notions of how people should be behaving when they're in this way. And I just don't think that it's fair to judge someone because we all experience grief and shock and trauma differently. And we all react to that differently. So, like I said, even though they were right to to look into the suspiciousness of the language, I also just kind of felt like, you know, like maybe, I don't know. I don't, that's not concrete enough evidence to me, I, I, I don't think. Because again, like I said, the reactions to grief, trauma, and shock vary from person to person. So to try and pigeonhole someone into that who's just found their roommate and friend's body is a little harsh. But again, as we will get to, they were right to do that. So they also focus on the fact that Karina doesn't even mention Faith's name during the call, which that I do find weird because that to me seems like she is distancing herself and many police believe that it was fake. So obviously suspicion went to Karina. Police then returned to the note that was found on the bed and surmised that the use of the word jealous implied that a woman was most likely the person who wrote this note or the gender of the person who wrote this note, which, again, I don't like those assumptions, but I do understand why they did in the logic behind it. But again, I just I feel like that leads to biases that can just cloud judgment when investigating a case. I just, I don't like jumping to assumptions, especially of gender, because of certain word usage. Despite how logical it may be, there are always instances where that cannot be the case and someone's doing that on purpose, you know? Now, Yuna goes to the police and she tells them that she was aware that actually Karina and Faith were having issues and that their living situation was not working out for Faith anymore. The week before Faith's murder, she had actually asked Yuna if she could move in with her. Now, Yuna said that at the time, Faith seems tired, stressed, and just worried, but never actually told her the exact issues between herself and Karina that made her want to leave. Forensic handwriting experts did compare the writing on the bag to the restraining order that Karina filled out, but the experts concluded that it probably wasn't a match. And a lot of Karina's friends actually came to her aid and offered support as the medias and others around her could just tore into her. Two years later, in January 2016, police decided to analyze the voicemail that Faith left on Yuna's phone. Arlo West, a forensic audio expert, was placed in charge of analyzing the voicemail. He was able to clear up the staticky audio and discern what was being said. 
he noted that there were four voices on the call, two male and two female. This was the conversation that he had heard. Female one, ow, my head. Female two, do it. Male one, I think she's dying. Male two, do it anyhow. He also hears female one say, ow, once more, followed by help me and get off of me. He describes female two as being furious and female two is heard saying, fuck you, I'm pissed. I'm gonna kick your face, bitch. I figured out that bullshit. You liar. You intentionally lied. Don't be a bleep. Put up a fight. Now, the, obviously, they bleeped it out. It was a five-letter word. I don't know what they said because they didn't leave me the first letter. <laughs> so I don't know what name she called her, but it doesn't matter. He also picked up on two names on the voicemail. One of the males says, I can't believe that you really did it, Rosie. And female two responds with something that ends to go help Eric. Now, clearly Eric is being named as someone who was there despite the lack of evidence. Again, this could be circumstantial, which is why he has not been arrested. But remember, Karina's last name is Rosario. So Rosie could be a possible nickname for her. And Faith's parents were able to identify Faith's voice and sadly heard her scream multiple times on the call. They also identified Karina's voice and confirmed that Rosie was one of her nicknames. So, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Now we know who's on the call, right? But again, this is all speculation, despite that they confirmed because it's hearsay. But one thing still bugs the police. And one thing specific is the timestamp of the call. Because it was also confirmed by surveillance footage from the club that they were at the club from 1 to 2 a.m. So West decided that he was going to look into more about the technology of the phones that they had had and the timestamps. And he found that both Faith and Yuna's phones had issues with timestamps and that the voicemails could be timestamped at the wrong times because the towers that were used were quote unquote glitchy. So this led him to totally discredit the validity of the timestamp. West shared his findings with the police department, but police don't feel that the voicemail is from Faith's murder, but that it was from an argument that they had had at the club. So police then decide as a next step to reach out to Parabon Labs, and they do this process called phenotyping, which takes DNA from a crime scene, and based off of the DNA information in the sample, they turn it into a 3D image of a suspect. It's a very new science, so its accuracy is not 100%, but police obtain the image from the phenotyping, and they find that the suspect has olive skin, dark hair, and is of Latino descent. So they release the photo to the public, and of course, they received a bunch of calls about it, but sadly, none of them really panned out. On September 16th, 2021, however, police arrested a man named Miguel Enrique Salgoro Olivieres for Faith's murder. His DNA is matched to the DNA at the crime scene, which they were able to obtain from him during a DUI stop. They also confirmed that there had been a bloody palm print on the rum bottle. It was a match to his. So he is currently being held at Durham County Jail without bond, 
And at this time, it's not sure if he has an attorney. He was scheduled for his first court appearance on September 21st, 2021, which revealed the information about the DNA in the palm print. But this case is still active and ongoing. I will do my best to keep you all posted um, as more details about this case comes out. But, you know, I think it's safe to say that Olivieris, Jones, and Rosario are responsible for Faith's death based off of the voicemail that Yuna received from Faith's phone. To me, it seems like Jones is a master manipulator, and I hate to say that, and maybe not a master manipulator, but he definitely had Karina under his thumb. And I think that he really convinced her that Faith was against them. And I have no idea what the lying part means or what that even pertains to, but it seems like that's the motive. There are like two things of this case that remain unclear to me. One is that, you know, there was semen found next to her, but I've not seen anything in my research that says that she was sexually assaulted, which obviously would just be more horrible and harrowing for Faith, obviously. And obviously, I hope she didn't have to go through that. But I did want to clarify that just because I said I haven't found anything in my research that said one way or the other. The other thing that I didn't find answers to was if police even looked into Karina's phone records. Because if her version of the events that she had given, you know, because she'd given the timeline for Faith's last day... She says that she had texted a guy friend, you know, quote unquote, booty call and went to his house, but then had another friend take her back to the apartment. I mean, obviously that is possible. And I w- I'm sure she might have just done that for an alibi. But given the way that Jones was, I can't imagine that she actually would have went to someone else's house, especially another dude. So, again, not really too sure what's going on there. Also, how would they have planned this? Like, I feel like there has to be some sort of digital communication trail between the two of them, unless they were unfortunately smart and just met up and talked about all of this in person, which which in that case, it would be hard to prove premeditation. But, again, I'm curious to see if there were any communications between her and Jones, her and Olivieris before all of this happened, and I haven't seen anything or heard anything that they even looked into, like I said, her phone records. So, I don't know. There are, like I said, there are some holes in this case that have not been filled, or at least that have not been made public. So, like I said, I'll keep you all posted on this. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. 
And if you're looking for more true crime and academia content, go over to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. Every month I post the video of my author interviews. So you can see, you know, more of our faces instead of just having to listen to the audio. And hopefully within the next couple of months, I will be able to get you guys some extra bonus content on the Patreon as well. So stay tuned for that. But you can't have any access to that unless you become a patron. So go over and do that. Anyway, my loves, thank you so much for listening. Your support means so much to me. And I will see you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an ivory tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook, and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we... Mary and I and the whole team hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and, you know, have you all join us in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.